0: If you are a guest with us, we, the last few weeks, have been journeying down this this road talking about the seven deadly sins. Uh, And the truth is that all sins are deadly. The Bible said, For the wages of sin is death. But thank God that He gave His Son so that we can have a new outlook and be forgiven of those things. So now that last week we got through the topic of lust, today we can. Breeze right through the easy-peasy topic of gluttony. (laughs) The other day, I was reading an article called The The Five Reasons Why Pastors Don't Preach on Gluttony. And I immediately thought to myself, well, I know the answer. They clearly want to keep their job, right? Can't fire me, though. I'm a volunteer. You ever try to fire a volunteer at a church? It's not a fun situation. Um, But have you ever heard a sermon on gluttony? Maybe a few of us have. They're pretty sparse. In fact, if you search uh, YouTube, you will, you know, you'll find some, but they're not as common as sermons on love and grace and other topics like that. Seem to be a little bit more kosher. Uh, dig up a lot less dirt when you teach those kind of sermons. But I, I think that the answers, are, and it's not so hard to see why people don't preach on gluttony a lot more. First of all, You know, our hypocrisy is evident, and it's obvious, specifically with gluttony. I mean, a preacher can stand up on stage and preach amongst any of the other deadly sins, pride, envy, greed, whatever it is, but, you know, everyone in the church probably during those sermons, except for maybe the pastor's wife, probably imagines that, you know, you have these issues well at hand, pastor, you don't struggle with this particular discipline but not gluttony, right? Because I mean, a pastor's bulging waistline or his strained collar or the buttons popping off his coat are kind of obvious. So you stand up there, you preach to the people about a visible, potentially visible struggle with sin. It illuminates hypocrisy in a very unique way. But hypocrisy is a a really big deal in the church. I think we'll all agree on that. But it's not just like the 90s or the 2000s or the 2010s. It's not just this century. It's been going on for centuries in past. Uh, there's a, a historical story of a well-known English evangelist named Charles Spurgeon. You might have heard of his name. Uh, he was very famous in the UK, and he was going to hold an event. And so he invited one of his counterparts from the U.S., a guy named D.L. Moody, another pretty well-known evangelist to come and speak. So Moody accepted, and he spent the entire sermon talking about the evils of tobacco and why God would not want a Christian to smoke. So Spurgeon, as it was, happened to be a connoisseur of cigars, and he loved to smoke cigars. So he took it as a little bit of a cheap shot that Moody would spend the entire sermon on stage condemning a fellow minister of the word about what seemed to be just a matter of personal conscience and that being Moody's personal conscience. So when Moody finished preaching, Spurgeon walked up to the podium and he said, Mr. Moody, I will gladly put down my cigars when you learn to put down your fork. True story. True story. And I think the reality is, is that we as Christians, we really hate it when another Christian sit struggles with a sin different than the sin that we struggle with it's hard for us like we we all have our struggles and you know it you don't you don't need to. i mean your spouse knows it. your family and maybe some of your friends know it you don't need to highlight it but we kind of become okay with our sin i shouldn't say okay i don't mean to insinuate that it's okay but you just you deal with it but by god when somebody else in the church has a sin that isn't the same one you struggle with it's a problem just kind of the way we are—splinters and planks, splinters and planks, right? Splinters in your eye, plank in my own eye. I think, secondly, in the time of the scriptures, there were far less opportunities or options for um, like types of food that that cause changes in physical appearance. You know, processed food, glutenized foods—you name it—and uh, I think that um, it's a little bit more of a delicate topic today. And, and um, at least obesity is more present. But let's face it. I think that pastors are kind of afraid to talk about this subject. Because I, I stand up here and then you think to yourself, how dare you, Pastor Brian? How dare you stand up there and condemn me for the way that I look or what I eat or how I appear to you? You don't know the struggles that I face. You don't know what it's like to struggle with with overindulgence and and overconsumption of food? You're one of the lucky ones. You have high metabolism. You were blessed that way. Well, you're right. I was blessed with pretty high metabolism, and, and it's not to say that I don't watch what I eat, but I did have a younger sister who spent the majority of her life grossly overweight with a thyroid issue, And a horrific eating habit, I watched her go through that to the point that it drove her to depression and ultimately to suicide. And I I struggled watching that in her life, and believe me, I struggled trying to help her. I did everything I can, but I watched it. So I may not exactly struggle with the exact same situation when it comes to food. We're going to learn today that it's not just about food. There are other elements and layers to this topic of gluttony, but I, I know I think I know what it's like, so I want to relate with you and and meet you where you're at. And for the record, I want you to understand two very important things about this topic. First of all, it has nothing to do with how you look. It really doesn't. I think many people in this room right now even are making a very common misjudgment about gluttony. And that misjudgment is that gluttony equals obesity. It's not the same thing. They are not the same thing. Why is that? Well, what you eat is not necessarily going to have the same effect as how much you eat. What you eat is not going to necessarily breed the same outcome as how much you eat. Here's an example. You might eat a lot. You might overeat. But you go to the gym or you run a few miles around your neighborhood and, and you wear it off. I may eat a lot less. Or I may eat a lot healthier, but I don't work out, we may not have the f- same physical appearance. But that doesn't mean that we don't one of us doesn't struggle with gluttony. You tracking with me? This? Go like this? Okay. I can't see you anyway, but I just want to know that you're <laughs> nodding your head. The second very important thing that I really want you to understand today is, is that I'm not judging any of you. I have no right to. I mean, we all we all overeat from time to time, don't we? And we all fixate on things, food or otherwise, that distract us from our relationship with God. So um, I don't know how many of you are, uh, you know, aficionados of barbecue. I love barbecue, and I love smoking meats, like on a wood smoker. I mean, it's just an amazing thing, the, the rubs and the juices and the injections and the flavors. I mean, it's, to me, you don't get that on a regular grill, and I, I love smoking meats. And um, I, I've subscribed to internet forums now about smoking meats. I have books on it, like little tabs marking every single page about which recipe and which rub and how long to cook it and what temperature. I mean, I'm into this thing. I'm into it. And if you know anything about smoking meats, Craig Burns, right? We shared, yeah, we sure, he's looking around. We, we text each other pictures of, our, of the, the barbecues and stuff sometimes. But if you know anything about smoking meats, you know that you very rarely smoke enough meat just for like one serving i mean usually it's like full racks of, of, of ribs like pork shoulders and and butts and briskets 14 pound briskets i mean usually don't you're not smoking like one little you know bite-sized piece of meat and uh like two months ago i was sitting on the couch and jill was sitting on the couch next to me and she was i don't know she was probably uh studying the scriptures like a good little christian lady that she is and um <laughs> i don't really think she was actually that's not a knock on her but i uh so I was watching YouTube, and I found this guy named Malcolm Reed. And he, he has a smooth Tennessee accent. He is a southern boy. And so I'm watching this YouTube video on my laptop, and Malcolm's going on and on about. Then you take the rub, and you put, you put it on there. Then you fire up your cooker, and turn it up to 350. And boy, you're going to love this. I mean, he's just going on and on. And so like 20 minutes in, Jill, she, she kind of stops right and she looks over, and she goes, Am I going to have to listen to this like every night or every week? Like, how long is this going to go on? And I looked over at her and I said, "Sweetheart, let me tell you something. For every hour of this guy that we listen to, is probably tens or hundreds of hours that you don't have to cook over the next ten years." And she went, "It was awesome. It was awesome." But to be clear, I, I'm a smoker, like DL Moody-approved kind of smoker, but I actually think it's just a gift of generosity and, and love for my beautiful wife. So you're welcome, sweetheart. There you go. You, you might be thinking um, thus far into this message. You might be thinking, Brian, I, I, I still don't really get it. Doesn't the Bible say that whether you eat or drink, aren't you just supposed to do that to the glory of God? Isn't that what the Bible says? It does. But I want to look at a, a few other scriptures with you today that may challenge you, maybe rub you wrong a little bit some 200 grit sandpaper on your forearm, whatever. But we're going to look at these together. We're going to walk through this. So I want you to look at the book of Proverbs 23, 20. This is, of course, King Solomon wrote this book. And and it says in this passage in, in verse 20, do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. Now, I want to give you some silver lining, some upside of this the good news is, is maybe you just accidentally do gorge yourself a little bit. I think it's safe to say that you are at that point in time, gorgeous. <laughs> if you gorge, you're gorgeous, right? Um, true story though, gorging yourselves on me. I mean, even in old Testament times, thousands of years ago, they, they struggled with this, but look at uh, Proverbs and I, I'm, I'm sorry that it's written wrong. The, the number is wrong in your, on your pages. It should be verse, it should be chapter 28, verse seven, but the scripture should be the same. It says, he who keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons disgraces his father. This particular text draws in like an inverse or opposite relationship between discipline and gluttony. What it's kind of saying is the person that has the discipline to obey the law, or in other words, do what is good in life and what God wants us to do in life, is generally not the person that has a gluttonous heart. That's what King Solomon's um, talking about there. And so here's an interesting fact for you. Would you believe if I told you that there are exactly three times as many scriptures in the Bible on gluttony than there are on homosexuality? There are. Interesting. The church seems to really put the spotlight on other sins like that, but we don't address gluttony one of the things that here at novation church we talk about a lot is if the bible says it we're going to talk about it we're going to try not to add to the bible or subtract from it but we got to talk about these sorts of things so um i find it pretty interesting that many of the the beautiful god-given gifts in life are just that they're they're beautiful gifts when they're embraced and appreciated and used within the context of the way that god wanted us to use those gifts However, if they're abused or underappreciated or over-consumed, sin starts to rear its ugly head. I'll give you some examples. Sexual desires. Nothing wrong with that. It's actually a fantastic thing. There is such a thing as the sin of lust. Some, someone praising you or building you up, giving you an attaboy or an girl, is fantastic. It's not evil. But there is such a thing as the sin of vainglory or vanity. The enjoyment of a little God-given rest. It's not evil. But there's such a thing as laziness and sloth. Sloth. Kristen's going to share that with us next week. So brace yourself. We're going to go through lust, gluttony, and laziness in three weeks. So if we have anybody left by Easter, we'll know that this is a good church. <laughs> the feeling of, of self-respect That's a good thing. But there is such a thing as the sin of pride. The desire to have something of value, something purposeful in your life, a home, a car, or technology or whatever, that's all great. But it can become coveting or envy if it's not managed. And, of course, the simple and wonderful enjoyment of food, awesome. But it can become gluttonous if it's taken advantage of. So, one definition of sin that I really like, God bless you, one definition of sin that I really like is filling a legitimate need through illegitimate means. It's a great working definition for sin. Filling a legitimate need that we have, but getting it through illegitimate means. However, with gluttony, I think it's a lot less about the means. It's a lot less about how you get there than it is the need or the level of need. And that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about con- consuming things as a sin in itself, but it's the level of the consumption that defines gluttony. And so let's take that definition a little further. Here's a, here's a working definition for gluttony. If you are unfamiliar with this word, here, we're going to go with this as a working definition. It should be on your notes. It says, gluttony is overindulgence and overconsumption of food, drink, or wealth items. And catch this. Such that it doles us from those in need and it distracts us from God. It doles us from those in need and it distracts us from God. Thanksgiving Day, when you're down to that very last bite of turkey and your stomach already hurts from the food and the, the water or tea or wine or whatever you're enjoying... And you take that last bite and you're practically shaking. Some of you literally shake. Are you are you really thinking of that person in your state or your country or another country who is is starving at that moment in time? Is that really on your mind in that moment? Now, again, I'm not here to judge, and and Jesus even said, and I take the same approach that I'm not here to condemn. That's not what we're trying to get out. But where is your mind in these moments? Where is our mind? We're enjoying this wonderful food. The key premise here is not necessarily the idea that we should not enjoy savory delicacies or rich desserts. I mean, otherwise, why would God name a holy mountain range in Israel Mount Carmel? I mean, clearly, the guy loved sweets. Um, but no, the key—the the key, the key is to be mindful and aware of overindulgence, and overconsumption, especially when it breeds ill regard for those in need or it replaces our need for God. So we're going to talk today about defending against gluttony. How do we defend against this beast? Well, I'll tell you that, that gluttony it, to me is nothing more than a little spark of temptation waiting for some fuel. That's all it is. And it, and it feeds off of discontentment. Did you see how I did that there? Gluttony feeds off of discontentment. You're welcome. So 1 Timothy 6, six, Paul wrote his first letter to his protege Timothy. He said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, what is great gain? Well, it's, it's having enough, and it's, and it's having a heart of gratitude for what you possess. Now, I'll share with you that the very next verse there in 7... Paul writes, we brought nothing into the world and we shall take nothing from it. That's how he follows that scripture up. And so he's sort of posing this question. If you had empty hands today, would you have enough? And if you had an empty tummy this evening when you go to bed, would you have enough in your life? A key to overcoming gluttony and overindulgence is to... Is to understand and confront discontentment. Now, discontentment actually has some really positive attributes to it. What do you mean? Well, for decades and, and centuries, discontentment has actually produced a lot of positive fruit or things. For instance, civil rights. Discontentment about how women were treated or how minorities were treated or slaves were treated brought about legal reform. Discontentment in the way that you eat and exercise, the way that you feel and look, bring a, breeds a change in lifestyle. And discontentment about the way that you parent, the relationship with your children, can breed a little bit more love and patience in that relationship. But discontentment is also a catalyzing agent that drives us to to acquire or consume an unnecessary amount of things, stuff, can cause us to become arrogant or unsympathetic, uncompassionate, unappreciative. And I'll tell you that a, a desensitized heart often becomes a gluttonous heart. So how do you defend against discontentment? Well, you got to pursue contentment by practicing a little old fashioned self control. Self control, oh Lord. If you choose, prefer to choose the word restraint, that's fine, fill in the blank, because some of us still haven't, we've spent a lifetime trying to really embrace this concept of self control and, and we struggle with it. So think of the word restraint as a, a replacement for that. Look at Galatians 5, Paul's letter to the church of Galatia in, in verse 22 and 23. He wrote, but the fruit, and you know this scripture, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control. He's saying that the same spirit that dwells within you as a disciple of Jesus Christ and dwells within me, the same spirit explicitly possesses the power to produce self-control in your life. It is within you. When you profess Jesus Christ as Lord, that spirit gives you the power and the ability to possess self-control. You've got you to believe that and you got to understand that. Look at Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 6. He wrote, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your bodies. He's saying take care of of this holy temple that was given to you to be a vehicle to transport your spirit through this life and to get you to the next one. Take care of that thing. We know it's going away. It's going to be buried in the ground or turned into ashes one day. We all face that same end. But take care of this thing while you got it. Put a little effort into it. Try a little bit harder. Now check out this one. King Solomon, who probably had more opportunity for gluttony in his lifetime than potentially any of us will ever have in ours, wrote, put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Now, Brian, are you saying that I'm to take my own life if I struggle with this sin? Not not exactly. See, the scriptures around this specific verse are talking about, Going into, like, the presence of a, a rich ruler who has this lavish spread of stuff. And and so, in other words, he's saying, if you are tempted or enticed by something or someone or somewhere, some level of extravagance or luxury that overwhelms you, then it's time to get out of Dodge. It's time to seek a change of scenery, potentially some new friends and acquaintances Because that temptation will wreck you, and it does. It wrecks us every day. Self-control, I want to read a a, a sort of a scientist, uh, psychologist definition of self-control, is the ability to control your inner emotions and desires and then interrupt undesired behavior such as impulses and refrain from acting on them what it is. It's getting in the middle of those impulses, those thought processes, which is say, I want, I need, I must have, and saying, no, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to refrain from it. Guys, self-control seems like a pretty daunting task. Pretty daunting. But let me encourage you, you got to start somewhere. So maybe the next time you go to a buffet line, Maybe you put just enough on your plate that you know you will finish. And maybe you challenge yourself not to go back for seconds or thirds, just once, one time. Maybe you you start by saying no or yes to certain foods, like maybe no to a bad food and maybe yes to a good food one time. Maybe you agree to never waste food. I want to tell you, like a year ago, I, the word gluttony popped into my mind and I, I wanted to know what the scriptures said about gluttony and this was long in advance before I knew that I was even going to be teaching on this subject today. So I did my own little deep dive on gluttony and I, and I uncovered a lot of the same things we're uncovering today and it wrecked me, I'll be honest with you. I mean it changed the way that like I'm looking at scraping food off into the trash can it changed the way that I looked at those leftovers sitting on the shelf in the fridge and my desire to finish them during the work week, you know, take my lunch instead of buying it. And frankly, I'm prayerful that some of those same convictions may come to you today. Maybe, maybe you'll fast for a meal or two. Maybe you'll just try it and show yourself that you're going to be okay. You're going to be all right. Now, maybe you are a person who struggles with stress and anxiety, okay? maybe Xanax doesn't do a lick of good for you, but bonbons and Cheetos like work wonders, okay? I'm, I'm, that, okay, I'm okay with that. But maybe, maybe for you, maybe it, it's time to start by controlling your tongue. Maybe it's time to start by controlling your words. I know we have at least a few of us that are potty mouths in here that have a hard time controlling our tongue, but the scriptures say that he who can control his tongue can control all the members of his or her body. If you have the ability to watch what you say and control the words that come out of your mouth, you ought to be able to tackle this topic of consumption and overconsumption. So look, I, I may not be able to magically change your diet. So what I thought I'd do for you today as a little special gift is I thought that I would give to you some of my favorite curse words that aren't really curse words. If you know what I mean like these are these have been transformational for me so when you want to say a curse word and I know I get it it's the heart behind what you're saying but these these may help you so 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 check it out if you're not taking notes me you want to write these down these are going to be really helpful for you today um so first of all when when like when you're super surprised or shocked I recommend you try holy buckets holy buckets or as my uncle used to say holy sheep dip that's a good one when you're surprised or shocked holy sheep dip um a second one is, like, when you're just all around frustrated or disappointed, I recommend cheese and rice. That's a good one, cheese and rice, especially if you have trouble using the Lord's name in vain. Just got to be careful who you say that one around. But yeah, cheese and rice. It kind of flows off the tongue nicely. Um, this one I learned from my friends down in Texas. I love this one. Uh, what the hairball? Yeah, that's a good one when you're, when you, don't, you know, you're just shocked at something. Um, this one i 'm not sure about. I heard on the radio a couple weeks ago. It may, may be good, like if for those cooking fiascos or if you love steak, you can try um, flipping fillet mignon. flipping fillet mignon, okay that one's terrible, but here here's the good one. this is This is by far my favorite. I learned this from um, Dustin, one of my one of my employees. This is my favorite. He, he says when um, he says, "Got down, sat on a bench, <laughs> got down, sat on a bench now. That one's great when you like stub your pinky toe or you get a paper cut. I highly recommend got down, sat on a bench. And I'll also add, for transparency's sake, that I also use the term dill whacker, which is what I call people when they uh, clearly have the inability to properly navigate our public streets. I I choose the word dill whacker. It's just, it's cathartic. I mean, it's therapeutic to say. All jokes aside, research research shows that people with higher levels of self-control are, are happier over both the short-term and the long-term. Self-control breeds happiness. Research shows that higher levels of self-control are correlated with educational, occupational, and social success. Self-control leads to success. Research shows that the people with the greatest levels of self-control avoid temptation rather than resisting it in other words they don't put themselves in compromising positions people that practice self-control know when and what are smart to do in certain situations so that you don't put yourself in a position to have to resist just avoid so while gluttony feeds off of discontentment it also feeds off of self-indulgence Self-indulgence is just kind of that, that focus on gratifying my wants and my needs. And the defense for self-indulgence is to take the focus off of yourself by practicing charitable behavior. The defense against self-indulgence is to practice charitable behavior. The, the idealistic American culture has made it more and more okay to get as much as you can whenever you can. The American way is, I gotta, I gotta get mine, just waiting for that shot. And I picture it like we're all standing at this giant pinata, like we're just taking turns, taking hacks at this pinata, hoping that a leg will break off or a neck will bust loose and, and all this good stuff will fall out for it. So that, what happens when you watch a, a bunch of kids in a pinata, what happens? As soon as, that, as soon as that bursts and breaks and the stuff falls to the floor, I mean, it is a flat-out rat race. I mean, it is, a, it is a race to collect as much as you can possibly get your hands on. But what happens? There's inevitably always one or two kids sitting off to the side crying because they got trampled over because they didn't get anything. It's a disparity of the American way. Some with a lot, a lot with a little. Charitable behavior, I have a hunch that charitable behavior could single-handedly transform this country and the political duress that we're facing. I believe that charitable behavior, behavior bridges the gap between those who want or need and those who don't understand that others want or need. I mean, it's a real attribute of our country right now. So when you're content, something really cool happens when you find contentment. You actually experience a freedom to start to focus on the needs of other people. When you find contentment, you're sort of freed and enabled to focus on the needs of other people. But a crazy thing is when you reverse that, if you're struggling with like, Brian, I don't know how to find contentment. I've I've been trying 38 years, still haven't figured it out. Check this out. Reverse that. And you'll find that sometimes focusing on the needs of others actually breeds contentment. It works that way. And, and the goal there, it's called look around therapy. We talk about that a lot here at Innovation Church. We talk about look, at, look around you and look at the, the position of other people. It don't, and by the way, don't do that so that you elevate your position. That's not the goal. The goal is to do it so that you can empathize and understand and you can go meet somebody where they're at, at their place of crisis, at their place of need, and maybe do something about it. Look around therapy. Now, if you really want to understand how bad God hates sin, I encourage you to put on your big boy or girl pants and go read the book of Ezekiel. You're going to read about some towns in the Old Testament called Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, I think most people recount the sin for which God took his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah as homosexuality. But I think you're going to be surprised. Look with me in Ezekiel 16.49. It says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. Arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. Um, Three years ago, maybe four years ago, I was playing golf with uh, a friend of the church who uh, no, moved away, no longer here. And we were playing golf together at Westwood's Golf Course over in West Arvada. Some of you are familiar with that. And at Westwood's Golf Course, there are, there's like three nine-hole courses there. There's like 27 holes. Normal is 18, but they, they name each one of the three a different name. And my personal favorite is the Silo Nine And (laughs) Darcy's laughing because, yeah, we both, we cry together when we golf that hole. But um, the silo hole is really cool. Well, they call it the silo nine, but the signature hole on the silo nine is actually the silo hole. There's a a big red brick, like, farm silo right in the middle of the hole, and you've got to, you know, hit up over the silo or, or hit around it to get up to the green. And it makes, it's a really fun hole. But one of the coolest parts about that hole for me this may sound vain, but there's a story here. Is when you when you kind of come up around the corner, like from the T-box area, there's a really nice neighborhood, and as you come around the corner, there's this like gigantic three-story house that looks like a hotel, and I mean it is it is awesome. It's awesome. Like you're in awe when you see it, and so I told this guy, and I just call him Jim for the sake of conversation. I said, Jim. One of the coolest things about this hole is the silo and all that, but when you come around the corner, you got to check out this, like, mega house, mansion thing. Okay. So we we hit our balls. We come around the corner, and I'm like, look at that thing. There it is. And he just kind of stands there and looks, and he's he's lagging back a little bit. And I look over. He's just kind of shaking his head, looking to the ground. I said, Jim, what's the matter? He goes, he just shakes his head. And I said, he goes, you know, it's just disappointing to me what they could have done with that money. I said, Jim, let me ask you a question. I said, how much do you think that house is worth? He said, at least a million bucks, probably two. I said, how do you know that that person didn't have 100 million and gave away 98 and spent the other two on his house? And he just kind of stood there and shook his head. Now, the truth is, he doesn't know. I don't know. You don't know either. None of us know what that person's life looks like or how much they gave or consumed or how little they gave. But what I do know is is that at some point in your life, you have to flesh out with God and hopefully your spouse what an adequate ratio of giving and taking looks like. You gotta flesh that out. You gotta talk about it and pray about it. You gotta look at the scriptures. You gotta seek counsel. You gotta look at your finances. And you gotta decide How much is enough? And do I want something more than God would want it for my life? Is this healthy or unhealthy for me and my family? You've got to work that out. Now, I know having a more charitable approach to life is part of this process we call sanctification. It's part of the sanctification process. Sanctification is this journey that happens once you have committed your heart to following Jesus Christ, sanctification is becoming more like him. But I think of sanctification like this: if you, if, you have a, if you have a job, if you have a boss at your workplace that you love, you have coworkers that you adore and you enjoy working with. there's a fantastic workplace culture and you feel empowered by what you're doing, are you not going to give 100% to, to serving that organization and to growing in your craft? Maybe you love sports. Maybe you love to play sports or watch sports, but if you play sports, some my athletes in the room, if you love the sports you're playing, I'm sure it probably brings you a lot of fulfillment and joy, let alone the, the physical benefits of exercise, But if you love it, are you not going to give yourself to to the benefit of your team and helping your team win and to becoming better as a player? And maybe you're a person that loves being a parent. And you know you were called to be a parent. Are you not going to try with every ounce of your being to not make the same mistakes over and over and over again that hurt your relationship with your children and disconnect you and set a bad example. No, you're going to work on the things that foster a positive relationship and influence for your children. I think, I think of that same way with sanctification. See, sanctification is all about overcoming sin and becoming more like the one who knew no sin. And it's a process that requires a wholehearted Approach and effort and commitment to following Jesus. I'm pretty sure that Christ, ha, you know, I'm pretty sure that Christ focused on having his needs met in his life, at least up to the point to when he gave himself up, you know, for crucifixion. And by the way, for those of you that fear that if you were to miss a meal or two, that you would probably die, let's not forget that Jesus made it 40 days and still came out alive. But he focused so much of his time on the physical and emotional needs of other people. In fact, I think it was grossly disproportionate to the amount of a time that he focused on his own needs and wants. He poured himself into enriching the lives of believers, and he focused so much energy on exhorting Jews and Gentiles to follow him. He was a charitable man, and in fact, you know what? He was so charitable... That he gave his life up as a gift for you. Jesus practiced self-control. And and you know what he learned to do? He learned to be 100% content in his relationship with the Father above everything else in his life. He found contentment in that. And you know what that did? That freed him up to build bridges to serve and to give to the lives of other people So you know what? So that they would want to follow him. So that people would want to be like him. See, the problem here, guys, isn't food. It's too much focus on food. The problem isn't sex or or cars or a little rest or improving your self-image. It's when you fixate on these things and abuse them. And when we use them in a capacity other than what God intended for us to use them. You have to choose to be grateful for each gift in your life, large or small. And you have to trust that God is going to let you know and let me know when we become a little too enamored on things that are not eternal and that cause us to take our eyes off of Him. So I want to encourage you today enjoy the gifts in your life, enjoy the good things but be mindful along the way of how you use them and be sure that you are giving a little bit and sharing that with other people, perhaps your church on the way. Let's pray. Jesus, you laid it all out. You laid it all out in your word. You spoke and you wrote and read in the Bible and you spoke through other people to encourage us in how is best to live our lives. And frankly, at times it's so contradictory to how it feels we should live our lives that the struggle to follow it is real. Life is not about being perfect, but life is being mindful and confronting of our sins to realizing that our sin disconnects us from you, the Father, and from one another. This morning, Lord, we just want to tell you how thankful we are for every good gift you've given us for the things that we take for granted in life and that we would be inspired to wake up every day and just say, thank you, Lord. You are the source and the provider and to help us to look around and just touch somebody else's life with a gift of good news, a gospel message, or maybe a little hand up in life we praise you we thank you and lord we gather to grow together as a church body imperfect and all and to live to bring glory to your name the one that's above all others is jesus christ amen